All right, I'm here with Elliot, and we're doing a politics episode. Elliot, how are we doing? Uh, very, very well. Um, especially to be in your presence, and uh, especially to talk politics, because as as uh, as we know, everything is politics, and politics is everything. Yeah, uh, I take politics personally. <laughs> Is what I think they tend to say. Uh, so Elliot is the premier uh, political homie um, in my circle. Um, and we are here at his new apartment, uh, which is fucking huge. Uh, and it's just him. You have a guest bedroom and you have a bathroom no one uses. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, I, I've I've completely forgotten that that bathroom exists with no <laughs> with with no adornment. The there's no curtain on the shower. It's it's just it's just a toilet, but a lot of toilet paper. It is stocked. Yeah, no. I mean, I, as a guest, I found myself uh, well well provisioned, as you would say. <laughs> um, so it's very good. Okay, so we're watching uh, C. So Elliot turned on his TV. And it was just on C-SPAN. Um, and uh, this is a quality that Elliot possesses that no one else I know uh, can lay claim to possessing um, otherwise. And I've watched uh, not an undue amount of C-SPAN, but I have enjoyed C-SPAN in the past. But you truly enjoy C-SPAN. What kind of what numbers are you putting up on a weekly basis? I mean, uh, I, I can't say these days uh, exactly what, uh, what the hours are, but... Um uh, it, there is there is so much information out there, especially in light of, of uh, with a, an upcoming presidential election. Um, there's so much just just straight, uncut, unfiltered information. Um, one of the ethos says of <laughs> of um, Brian Lamb, the kind of founding executive of the network, is to always leave the microphone on and hot. And so you get these conversations. Not only do you see the stupid events they're doing at you know the um, you know, as the candidates are attending their 15th uh, fish fry um, <laughs> on, on the way to some primary. But then you hear the, the things that people are saying to them. and Oh, turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah, so we're, we're watching the New Hampshire Democratic Party convention uh, and the, the candidates. And this is live, live in Elliot's apartment. Uh, and the candidates are coming through. And um, yeah, uh, my girl, Marianne Williamson, has just taken the stage. <laughs> Do you got subtitles in this? Yeah, in the yeah, mix, one, does, one, one does, second here. does C-SPAN do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I can't yeah. really, like, listen in. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Hold up. Um, she's talking, uh, uh, although I can't see what she's saying, or, or we don't have the subtitles, I can tell you that she's discussing love, uh, the power of love, the... Um, Laura's theme from Twin Peaks is playing in the background as she talks. There it is. Okay. Important to remember, in the past, our country's risen up, pushed back any forces that needed to... What is she... Is she oh, that forces needed that needed to be pushed, pushed back. back. Thank goodness. So she's going, to, she's, she's going to war, I guess. We responded to abolition? <laughs> uh, abolition, which it was naturally occurring at the time, uh, was something we had to address. <laughs> yeah. well, shout out to the suffragettes. Uh, that's a really dope jacket. She's, it is. She's got some blown out lines going on. Uh, yeah. So she's she's wearing a. I, I don't quite know how to describe the the pattern, but it's a, it's a very smartly cut jacket with uh, incredibly cut shoulders. Um, a nice nice lapel uh, that uh, that uh, frames her uh, her face. 
Um, and yeah, it's like a black and white, uh, not check, not not gingham, not not micro plaid, but but something, something in between. Um, she's up there with great confidence. I think she's um, hitting her hitting her stride and her rhythm. Look at the moxie that she's displaying right now. I mean, she has incredible power uh, and uh, I think clarity of thought. Um, tell me, d- tell me, what's your assessment of Marianne Williamson? I think earlier you said she's a kook. Yes, yeah, she does strike <laughs> me as a kook. Um, I think uh, polit- polit- political campaigns that are themed around um, just needing to love more, while that is an important element of what the world needs, Elliot it's is like not yeah. enough for me. <laughs> Elliot does not love. I do not love. And I've seen it before. I mean, uh, in 2008, um, uh, Ron Paul's campaign um, sort of slogan and like literature was... Um, Taking the word revolution, oh, right. the L O V E, and right. it, putting it backwards and everything, and it's like, well, if that if that guy who who couldn't be farther from the concept of love or compassion for others, if that guy is using it, then I I think he he just absolutely uh, burned it out. I, I I can't I can't dig it. Uh, but I don't know. I guess Mary, Marianne Williamson does seem to be saying. Um, uh, we saw a moment ago she was um, uh, hating on the status quo. That's always a, a drum that needs to be banged, and, and we should all be dancing and marching to it. Damn, so she's she's going off on 1776 and, <laughs> and why we became an independent nation, uh, and she's also talking about uh, civil rights and... Um, Repudiated an aristocratic paradigm in 1776. Yeah, wow. So I, I just heard that much of the, the reason for the um, revolt and, well, at least the, the Boston Tea Party aspect of it was that um, the American smugglers of, <laughs> of tea did not want to have to pay the, the duly levied British taxes. Right, right. So it's, it, was just, it was just like upper class rogues. Slander. <laughs> you're, you, you're, you're speaking bad. Oh, so we got one guy who's got a Marianne uh, sign. A well, a well dressed man. Um, whoa! So, so she's uh, got crazy hand movements going on right now. Uh, she's vibrating at a high frequency in the same way a hummingbird Absolutely. might be. So, uh, one of the good things about this uh, apartment is that it's right next to the uh, fire station. So, yes. apologies for the the uh, ambience, the ambulance amb- ambience. <laughs> Uh, uh, free yeah, healthcare. Yeah. You give me a good education. You give me a fair shot. Uh, but what does it beat big lies with big truth? Hey, okay, that's I fuck a slogan. with that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, an elderly woman who is uh, nearby, able to travel to Manchester, New Hampshire, in the middle of the day, uh, <laughs> was holding this Marianne Williams sign. Marianne Williamson sign. I'm dying. Um, I just ate a giant tub sandwich and drank a ton of cup. And uh, oh man. Oh folks, we we slammed. What do you think it was about five to seven pounds of sandwich? Of uh, easily fifteen hundred calories. <laughs> with uh, with the dipping sauce. Don't ever forget the importance of the of the hot barbecue sauce. She is she is like vibrating is the best word. Like She's, shoulders are shaking, her fingers. She is zooted. Let's get some. Okay, sound. you heard it now. Marianne Williamson <laughs> is fucking quad spro. She's a sixer in oh military industrial comp. Damn. Yeah, she's hating on contracts. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tr- see if, if it helps to hear her talking. Oh yeah. Damn. She's got a narcotic voice. Her tone of voice. It's easy to get lost in it. She is. And 
the whole yeah i'm sorry i forgot that we were recording a podcast so just like my stunned <laughs> silence isn't helping but her um her she's just she's really smooth she's she knows what she wants to say and and she's saying it with great confidence she's also clearly tailoring this to the audience i think like she knows that uh, these kind of shall we say upper middle aged uh residents of new hampshire are not necessarily going to go in for the uh the the um, loving mindfulness. Uh, <laughs> so she's hitting him with like uh, the classics, the all American class. We're gonna r- reverse climate change, traumatized children, military industrial complex. So um, I I know that this uh, Ooh, a season of repair. Ooh. <laughs> We're going to initiate a season of repair. I fuck with the season of repair. So I'm I'm realizing that Marianne Williamson is is somewhat consistent with with things I've experienced through Prep the Cup. Um, First of all, you know that she knows some stuff about crystals. Oh, she said love. <laughs> there it is. No, she said we're gonna we're gonna push back against haters in this country. Uh, those they are convicted. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Their conviction is a multiplier. Anyway, uh, sorry. You uh, yeah. So you know, Marianne Williamson knows a thing or two about crystals, uh, and she speaks with um, with evangelical uh, uh, meaning and like a whole different vocabulary. Um, she's not exactly. I almost called him Joe Sestak. Um, uh, she's not exactly Joel Osteen, you know, coming Ooh. forth with talking about lack and things like that, but she definitely has her, her own vocabulary that she's applying to the world's problems. And she's made some money selling books. Oh, she has. That's what I understand. Oh, nice. Well, yeah, what is her angle, her financial angle? That I don't know, um, but, but I'm a little... I would have thought that someone would already have put out something tremendously embarrassing about her. Um, I mean, they have been the, out there a long time. They have her anti-vaccination oh. tweets. I think that's the thing that that's people throw around when they want to make her uh, appear completely insane. See, pe- uh, she is slamming the podium. <laughs> oh, look! Look at all the Marianne people. They're fucking up front row. We're gonna we're gonna get a replay of this. Oh wow. All right. Um, so the vibrations are extremely strong, and I, yeah, I like Marianne Williamson. I would be so intrigued to see like the the difference that would be split between her her uh, strategic mindset and then the um, entirety of the U.S. government, which would work against her. Oh <laughs> yeah, they they would respect. straight up assassinate her. I mean, before her inauguration. I, well, I don't know about she's not that insane or that threatening, is she? Yeah, she is. She's she, like she's directly threatening to like. Well, as she professed the status quo, and um, and the whole anti-vax thing, I think I think she's really harnessing people power, and they're not gonna they're not gonna tolerate that. I don't think she <laughs> d- fucks with that shit anymore. Um, okay, but that's I will ne- I will not hear that kind of talk in your apartment. All right. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, we're waiting for Andrew Yang to take the stage. I guess he's not that exciting of a speaker. I don't know that I've he's, ever actually seen a full speech of his. But I don't, I haven't either, so I guess we'll, we'll tune in and, and pay attention. I, uh... Oh, wow, he's, he's, he's sprinting. He runs on stage. Okay, he hit the stage. There's no, like, uh... Oh, uh, oh wow. his, his entrance music was, uh, Mark Morrison's Return of the Mac. <laughs> he's, he's energized. Humanity first, that's his slogan. Ironically, isn't much of his uh, <laughs> isn't much of his no um, automation is supposed to make life better. <laughs> it's supposed to make human beings uh, able to focus on their humanity and not on their uh, their dead end, reified, alienated. <laughs> 
assembly line jobs. Oh, one of the signs that say math. <laughs> the clear uh, undergraduate jabroni Yang head holding Yang up a, a sign that says Andrew Yang math. Uh, he graduated well. in 92. Um, he's not top button in the least. His no. fit is inferior to Marianne's, uh, no it, question. It is inferior, but generally men in politics, I mean, the, the, just the way men dress is, is far more boring than the way, you know, women dress. But yeah. I'd love to see him step up there with the houndstooth gingham combination, no. but he's not doing it so far. So he's a tech, a technology entrepreneur? Yeah, I confess I actually don't know where he got his money from. Yeah. Um... I suspect it's just some tech brand name that I'm forgetting. Uh, he's probably going to say it. Actually, he would he would likely need to say it in order to present his bona fides. <laughs> uh, so, so is the lower standard of um, of fittedness for men uh, one of the reasons why Joe Biden felt entitled to blow his eye up? Uh, <laughs> yes. Now, uh, ironically, Joe Biden has a reputation for being one of the more Natalie attired. Um, uh, men in public life, um, which uh, I like to put right next to his identity of also being, having been the quote-unquote poorest member of the Senate because uh, all of his wealth was put into his wife's name. So if you like technicalities, that's that applies there. Um, but yeah, yeah. So all I know about the, the climate change um, uh, town hall is that he got up on stage, he rambled like he knew what he was talking about, yet the words he was saying didn't really connect with each other or reality, and then his eye became progressively bl uh, bloodier or more bloodshot as the event went on. That That's all I know. <laughs> and so, does that bode well for his campaign? What's your assessment? <laughs> what's it, what's it, Imagine you're like a, a judge at the Olympics and you got to hold up a placard with a number uh, assessing the performance. Well, uh, if we if we assess different components, he could he could get a ten on one of them, such as just uh, just utter audacity <laughs> for his whole campaign. How dare he! But overall, I'd give him I'd give him a a, a stingy a stingy two. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think that Joe. <laughs> I am upset at Joe Biden for making me reassess the way I felt about him at the end of his vice presidency. I was perfectly happy to see him as, um, you know, America's uncle who you know said some weird stuff, but but uh, w you know was was backing up a, a president that that uh, that I could uh, whose efforts I could believe in, um, and now he just he's out here. Um, Showing the marked decline in his acuity, um, his he's not you know he he was never the world's most articulate person, but um, but his his speech isn't very sharp. I don't want to say it's slurred, but it it is garbled from time to time. Um, he he's he's what's the distinction between slurred and garbled? <laughs> Uh, it is utterly semantic. <laughs> I mean, garbled, it feels jumbled, whereas slurred feels sloppy. Is that... Yeah, I guess he's doing both from uh, time to time, depending right. on, on where he is. Like, I, I can't imagine that he can withstand a campaign. I can't imagine that he can withstand um, a presidency. I don't believe that his um, that he is well-versed enough on enough issues to meet the challenges that are ahead of us. And I do believe that, as we've examined his record as a senator... Um, 
not the third senator from Pennsylvania, as he was fond of having people call him, but the longest serving senator of Delaware, a state that's utterly run by banks, um, a state that uh, is is only not considered a southern state because of <laughs> where it's located. <laughs> because of where it's located. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. So that, but, but I mean, I, I hear, I hear some pretty rough stuff has happened there uh, um, at the University of Delaware. It's not a, that's not a, a great place to be, uh, not white and not male. Um, so I, I just, I really wish that I could see him the way I did in 2015, but now I see him as someone who needs to get out of the race. Very well, very well. And uh, you can infer from our discussion that Andrew Yang is actually pretty boring. Um, he's got all of the tried and true slogans that you would expect to hear out of Silicon Valley, such as data is the new oil. Um, Alaska gets oil checks. And they uh, love it. Everybody is going to get a data check, I guess is what he's implying. Uh, you're going to love it. This is the trickle-up economy. I mean, whatever. I mean, wait, this is uh, all so obvious. And, and, uh, I'm not against these ideas, but um, it feels like they're uh, delivered by someone who doesn't understand them. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I d maybe he really understands them, but I don't get that impression. And it doesn't necessarily seem to me that okay, he's going to make jobs in New Hampshire with universal basic income. Also, at the expense or at the risk of um, of uh, being overly rough on New Hampshire, uh, why risk it all? Why does why does a state that's so small um, deserve this level of pandering? Shouldn't they be pandering to a much larger state at this uh, <laughs> at this point? Shouldn't they be pandering to a much larger, more diverse state right now instead of instead of uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and eventually they'll they'll pivot to South Carolina and Nevada? But I would say that those are pretty particular, uh, um, uh, unique political environments, also. Um, so tell me a bit about the uh, who the fuck is this governor candidates uh, yes. that, that are that are um, uh, disintegrating at a rapid rate as as if Thanos has snapped his fingers. <laughs> um, yes, uh, uh, the former governor of uh, of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. Uh, I think he's former Den former mayor of Denver, a former brewery owner. He insisted on talking about that. Um, his candidacy really sucked, and I was very happy to see him get out of it because he he really seemed like someone who was not prepared for a larger stage, who wasn't prepared to talk about more important issues, uh, and and I disagreed with some of his stances on you know well he he uh, a attacked my generation the millennials and leave that to me I can attack my generation just fine um, and he also just didn't seem to get it he just. He's just not sophisticated en uh, enough for the electorate or for the challenges that lie ahead for uh, for the uh, the president over the next four years. Um, so he also um, was oddly enough there was a kind of an interesting Colorado connection because uh, Governor Hickenlooper, one of his former staffers, is Senator Michael Bennett, who is still in the race. Although he's a senator, I would lump him in the governor who the what. Um, you know, just like these these dudes who aren't compelling at all. Politics at its at its essence, folks. Remember this: getting more votes than the other person is simply a, pol uh, a popularity contest. 
It helps to be uh, unique in some way. It helps to be powerfully ugly. It helps to be powerfully handsome. It helps to to be um, uh, to be like super rich. It helps to be rude. It helps to just be different than other people. It doesn't have to be a positive attribute. It just has to be different. Um, and and nothing about uh, Governor Hickenlooper or Senator Bennett uh, is different. Um, I'm going to give more. Uh, campaign attention to Governor Steve Bullock of Montana than he deserves or has received so far. His performance at the debates have been um, have been ri- ridiculous. So there is this this like Western gov- Democratic governor theme of. Um, of uh, making it seem like their voters are extreme and don't get it, and maybe that that works to get you elected statewide. Wait, whose voters? Like their own constituency? Uh, li- li- like the the Democratic primary uh, okay. base. Um, at least that that's how I'm processing it. But like people who want to take aggressive um, action to uh, deal with the uh, effects of climate change, um, r- rather than just trying to profit off of them, or people who don't want to who who aren't willing to lie anymore about how effective of a bridge natural gas is going to be to a cleaner energy economy or people who want to tax rich people to the extent that they can pay their taxes and everyone should be should be you know taxed in some fair way to, to pay for the the things we're all getting together it's not like our taxes are going to just buy candy we're actually paying for things that that we all need and wouldn't be able to build uh, alone um, but yeah governor Bullock acts like that and it makes you wonder who is who's funding his campaign so he needs to get out he needs to get the fuck out uh, what about our boy Jay? Uh, Governor Jay Inslee has uh, um, I, uh, stands out among the uh, white male governors who've run for president or who run for the Democratic nominee that nomination, whom people don't really know that much about across the country. I think first of all, his uh, career as a congressperson for um, for I think more than fifteen years is uh, more distinguished. Uh, his um, uh, background as a as a trial attorney um, has qualified him to see things from a from a more uh, human perspective. Elliot just graduated from law school and is a lawyer. Now, so <laughs> just a full disclaimer for the audience. I know the audience is uh, you know uh, wants to see some credentials, uh, and so I want to just provide them. I know. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I just I just finished a three year period of indoctrination, only to begin <laughs> only to begin a thirty year period of indoctrination where I trust anything a lawyer tells me. <laughs> Um, and uh, and also um, Jay, Jay Inslee is a, he's got a, a folksiness that I thought could have worked, but also he's um, from what I heard from a uh, his main uh, his administration's main attorney. Um, Jay Inslee is about solving problems and then like identifying problems and then figuring out how to solve them with little. Um, uh, and he's not so worried about how possible it is to solve them or about who you have to uh, please to solve them. He's worried about fighting the fight um, uh, and making change through through those means. Um, and I, I went to a... Um, Back when I was in the recycling industry, uh, the the industry's lobbying group went to thank you went to Olympia for a um, uh, just for like a hey here's here's how Olympia works for all for all of us who are just like staffers at cities and and counties and stuff. 
uh, and the um, a former member of the Washington State House of Representatives, who at the time was the lead for the uh, building construction lobby, devoted. He should have been talking about like construction debris and recycling that, but he devoted the bulk of his talk to just hating on Jay Inslee to the point where he was calling him dumb and contrasting him with with previous gov- previous Democratic governors. So I took that to mean that Jay Inslee's personal style. If he's making lobbyists for the building industry uncomfortable um, and former Republican members of the state house uncomfortable, he's right where I need him to be. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I, I, I'm glad that he ran. I'm glad that he, um, that he focused on, uh, God, this is a boring man, Tom Barrett. Um, he, I'm glad that he focused on, um, on climate change. I wish that he had had more time to more, to like, to more effectively, um, remind us of how, of, of why we should care about it. Like I already care about it, but I, I, I think I could care more. Sure. Um, and I was hoping he could push us toward there. Um, I think that his, I, I think he was going to get better at debates. So I'm, I'm sorry that he, that he dropped out, but I do appreciate the fact that he dropped out at a time, uh, well, when he realized that he wasn't going to win the nomination and people like, I'm glad Hickenlooper dropped out. I hope his run for Senate isn't as disastrous as I think it's going to be. Um, but Bullock needs to get out and, uh, uh, Beto needs to get out and the comic book villain Tulsi Gabbard needs to get out. <laughs> Uh, and I, I can't even remember. And Bennett needs to get out. There are so many jokers on this in this train car. I, or sorry, this clown car that I can't keep track of them. But get out. Put it down to this to this top five or six so that we can actually have a, a solid conversation and contrast these people and 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 make a, a solid decision. Wait, why, why is Tulsi Gabbard a villain again? Oh, because she has this shock of gray hair. <laughs> Um, and I'm, I'm not here to hate on gray hair. I'm, I'm, my, my temples aren't as uh, aren't as jet black as they used to be. But it's like she straight up looks like uh, I guess Storm isn't a villain, but <laughs> no, she's quite wholesome. Actually. She's quite wholesome. But like seriously, I could see I could see Tulsi Gabbard being depicted in in a comic book because of her. Um, uh, um, Oh yeah, because of her her dark black hair and the shock of of gray hair on the on the side of it. Oh, and she's there's no doubt if you listen to the things she says and the particular voc- and the particular vocabulary that she's using, there is no doubt in my mind that Tulsi Gabbard is working for someone who doesn't work for the American people. Ooh. I you know I we we all are quite aware of of <laughs> of the uh, influence and the machinations of. Um, of Russia, maybe, maybe Tulsi Gabbard has some connections with them. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, doing? I know. I sound, I sound what crazy. Are you doing? I sound crazy, and I'm going to have to start defending myself in, you know, in libel suits. Uh, but, um, but the the vocabulary she uses, um, if if she if she got her way, the United States would shrink from the world stage in a way that would let um, other other people who who are trying to advance un freedom uh run wild and unfettered and and i'm i'm not saying that america doesn't need to reassess its role on the world stage i actually believe that america has a lot of sort of receipts and debts to pay for um you know we live really generally the american standard of living is pretty good and it's been it's because we've been um siphoning off (laughs) not siphoning off but just like straight up sapping wealth from other people for a very long time um so i'd like to see us reorganize our foreign policy around that sort of a realization rather than just letting um, Syria and Russia do whatever they want, which is uh, what I believe uh, Tulsi Gabbard is actually advocating. Oh, man, I love it. I know. 
I'm, I'm going to regret. I'm going to regret that stuff in a long time for for for, for some in, at at some point. But we'll see. What is life without regrets? <laughs> True that. Wouldn't be any type of life at all, especially if you all. ask me. Um, all right, I think so. We should. Uh, we ought to leave C-SPAN. What's going on on C-SPAN two? Can we check that out? Um, yeah, they, there was some. Uh... <laughs> oh. Senator Michael Bennett, the land of flickering lights. Restoring America in an age of broken politics. Okay, so presidential candidate books are uniformly garbage. Absolutely. Uh, I remember we went through John Kasich's book, and he there was a section where John Kasich was talking about the, the his favorite songs that were played on the tour bus, and it was... <laughs> Perhaps the most anodyne set of like <laughs> pop songs ever, and he had like a he had he uh, suggested that there was like conflict on uh, on the bus about what to listen to, and it was between like three classic rock bands. I can't remember Jesus. what the songs were, but um, it's definitely something like that. Also, hey, you're the candidate. You decide. You yeah. decide what, what anodyne rock song is going to play, okay? <laughs> You're going to be the one who's in charge of all of these people who are going to become your staffers if you win, which you won't. But which you won't. Okay, C-SPAN 2 is book TV. Yeah, so all day Saturday they, they devote to uh, to all the appearances they record of, of various authors. And, and I don't know if there's a... Th- they, they oftentimes have a theme, but but um, but maybe... But I can't tell if they have one today. I guess today it's po- po- uh, shitty Michael Bennett. Well, That's the theme. How trite. Restoring America in an age of broken politics. So Michael Bennett is actually... He's a very um, a very sharp person. He's... he's uh, he, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't go through his whole biography, but my sense is that he's done very well for himself in business. He's also been a very accomplished. Um, let's see, he he uh, was uh, he ran school public schools in Colorado, and then was appointed to the uh, Senate seat that was vacated when Obama appointed uh, Ken Senator Ken Salazar, Interior Secretary. I didn't realize that's how it works. So if you're appointed out of that position, or I don't know, if the position's vacated, there can be an appointment to. Yeah, so states can do it kind of, states can choose from several ways of doing it, but the most common is that the governor appoints the person to fill out either the, like, the, the rest of the term or maybe until the next federal election, so generally uh, two, okay. two years, and then after that, some you, there's a, an election for a full six-year term, but uh, there are other states that have, that have mucked around with it a bit. Massachusetts, when it looked like John Kerry was going to win the presidency and a governor was, was in that, uh, uh, and a Republican was governor of Massachusetts in 2004, they changed it so that the governor would, uh, I think, appoint someone for only uh, several months, and then there would be a special election, and there are other states that that have variations that that all uh that manifest how whatever the partisan breakdown is basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> everyone's got a personality yeah. everyone and everywhere everyone's uh personality all right well michael bennett sucks okay yeah, so we got boring, c-span though. c-span 2 is there a third c-span you bet there is so c-span 3 is about uh history um The 1901 World's Fair and McKinley's assassination. Fuck yeah, dude. Now, this is is actually... (laughs) Jeez. Um, yeah, shot by an anarchist, <laughs> right in the chest. That's that is praxis. That's that's as close as it gets to, <laughs> to living to 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 walking the walk. Uh, uh, so I think one of the important things to know about uh, William McKinley is that he's a classic. Um, he's a classic. 
uh, 19th century president um, who was basically chosen by business interests by the Republican Party. He literally sat on his porch to make it seem like others wanted him to be president. And this is a, this is a playbook that's trotted out every now and then. Um, but even George W. Bush had this sort of, this sense that he was being drafted. Um, and then, uh, of course, he catered entirely to America's expansion uh, across the Pacific. He catered to big business. It was at the time, this is at a time when American farmers were suffering, where there was a lot of suffering in, uh, also in, in in urban America, uh, and um, he, uh, there also wasn't much security around the president. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, 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 a potent comment, uh, uh, a situation. Uh, uh, what am I looking for? Um, uh, uh, pregnant scenario. Shall we <laughs> yeah, say. A pregnant scenario, and indeed, his chest was impregnated with Ooh. an anarchist bullet. <laughs> Uh, and and then this uh, vice president of his, Teddy Roosevelt, um, took over and and created the the current sense of the you know very charismatic, powerful uh, American executive that we've had since. All right. Well, that leads me into. And by the way, this this like this like uh, panel or the, this this installment of American History TV C-SPAN three History Bookshelf. <laughs> Uh, with this author, um, it was filmed in 2016. <laughs> oh. So, uh, you know, uh, never a bad time to revisit these types of, <laughs> these types of things Indeed, on no. C-SPAN 3. Uh, so what you were just saying uh, leads me into uh, the second segment of the pod, which is that I grabbed uh, like at least a dozen books off of your shelf all to do with history and politics, <laughs> and I just want to get your take on all of them. This and sounds this, fun. And, this, and, and, and what you were saying brings me to the one of the three books you have on Teddy Roosevelt, this one entitled Theodore Rex. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, Edmund Morris, and I don't know anything about the other work that Edmund Morris has done, but um, but he did a three-part um, series on Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, and the, the, I, the first volume I read was the second one that covers his presidency. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's... I bought it used. Oh, two bucks, actually. Thank goodness. Um, and um, it's been so long since I've read it, I don't, I don't remember. But uh, basically, Teddy Roosevelt has been someone. Um, I'll, I'll off, <laughs> offline. I'll share uh, my um, the uh, network password or for, for my router. It, it has something to do with Teddy Roosevelt. Oh. <laughs> and like Teddy is not even my favorite presidential Roosevelt, but he's he's highly charismatic. Um, uh, wrote a ton. Also, in the first volume of this, it talks about how um, he used to go out to... So he's he's a New Yorker. The, the Roosevelts are very much New Yorkers. Um, and his uh, his mom also has some roots in Georgia. So he was he was uh, both both northern and southern. But, but our first and most western president, um, he went out to the badlands of... Ooh, I don't know which Dakota. I don't think... I don't think... I don't think the Dakotas had resolved themselves yet. Oh, really? By that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's history, people. Uh, and uh, he... Um, he was, he went out there as a dude, uh, you know, a well-dressed, fancy Harvard and Columbia educated, uh, heir to, I think a furniture fortune. Um, you know, it's even older. Like they've, they've got so many generations before the generations we know of. Uh, and, and he became a very hardy, rugged Western man. He, um, he was a very sickly child and he worked himself into, into health and vitality. Wow. And he, he kept, he kept that up throughout his life. And so he went out and, uh, in the first volume, this is something I've been meaning to 
to pull out and read for people. Um, and he's also, he writes the most extensive diaries and he would like essentially read a book a day. But, um, in this one diary, he outlines all of, all of the creatures that he shot in the course of one hunting trip. It is, it is pornographic. It is, it, 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 you would think, I mean, it was a different time. So there, it must've seemed that there would be no end to these species, but I think he's single handedly like, and this is, this is why he is so much of his presidency was, was spent on, um, on protecting, uh, wild, and American lands because he had shot him up. Yeah, he had shot him up. He felt bad. He shot up the club, and he was like, "Oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that." Hey, let's let's make sure no one else can shoot. Up the club. <laughs> um, he apparently had a, a very uh, high pitched voice that he used a lot, and he would clench and bite his teeth to uh, to punctuate his points. Um, he. Uh, so as we were saying, he served as vice president to um, the absolute, the uh, at the uh, time the epitome of a, um, uh, a corporate um, shill. Shill, yes, th- thank you, a corporate shill, and um, because of Teddy Roosevelt's um, independence and his understanding of regular people, well, his relatively developed understanding <laughs> of, of what regular people go through, um, he. Uh, he governed in a way that frightened that frightened the people who had made him vice president, uh, and he, um, you know, this we have a very antiquated sort of antitrust regime of of laws to facilitate uh, business competition, but we wouldn't even have that were it not for him uh, just having his sheer well being determined to insert some some fairness, but also um, uh, the sort of charisma he had and force of personality that he could exert on on voting members of Congress. Beautiful. How are you doing in terms of uh, your stamina and eloquence knows no bounds? How's that? Um, All right. From uh, a a rugged frontiersman to the softest of the soft, uh, this book, Fortunate Son, George W. Bush and the Making of an American President. Um, I have been meaning to read this one. I think I even might have, I think you lent this to me and I tried to read it. Uh, Yeah, I think this is actually my bookmark. Anyway, tell us about this book. Uh, So this one I found, uh, you know, in in a a discount section at... uh third place books um and it it effectively takes us back and it's it's important to, to do this now that george w bush's um reputation is is being rehabilitated through his uh, rudimentary painting did you ever see that photo of uh, placing every one of his paintings next to the very first google image result when you type in like vladimir putin or like no yes no no <laughs> so yeah he he goes on google image search does a keyword forever whatever he wants to do in the first picture that comes up he just does a crude facsimile of it are you serious i believe so i don't know if he does that now but it's um yeah it's pretty ludicrous yes. anyway you were saying dude um so uh yeah yeah so he's he's now um uh rehabilitating his image but this takes us back to the time um right before he ran for president and it just catalogs how he's just a <sighs> he's an entitled son uh he's he's a, a much sharper political mind than he ever portrayed himself when he was a president um he's he's uh 
tremendously connected with with people whose whose wealth dwarfs his own, which is which is ample ample wealth, personal wealth to George W. Bush. Um, a couple of the things that stand out in this are how quaint his corruption seems compared to what we're seeing today. Huh. Um, so uh, campaign bundling after. Um, uh, Every now and then we we um, change campaign rules, and the way we had uh, and we had done away with you know someone just straight up writing a hundred thousand dollar check because of the maximums of somewhere around two thousand. It's probably twenty four hundred dollars now. That that's the most that, that an individual can donate to a presidential campaign. But you can use your influence and power over people by bundling by getting all your friends to write the twenty to the two thousand dollar check or the maximum check, and then delivering it. And that is that is as valuable in its own way as just writing a hundred thousand dollar check and it also means that you are now the the conduit of influence between the president and these hundred donors that you got um but yeah that was that was definitely something that became um much more commonplace and popular under george w bush's campaigning um and his uh nakedly appointing you know good bundlers to you know um, really great ambassador seats, which is not the most offensive nor unheard of thing in American politics, but he, he took it to, uh, to another level. Also, um, he loves him a shady land deal. Uh, when he was owner of the Texas Rangers, he, uh, he of course, um, uh, as, as owner of the Texas Rangers, he and that ownership group just took a bunch of land from a bunch of people to build a stadium that's being replaced. I think they've replaced it right now, or next season they'll be playing in a new one. So they they abused eminent domain and, and took people's land from them just to build a, a prematurely outdated uh, baseball palace. Well, um, yeah. Oh, and of course, you know, avoiding service in Vietnam and blah, blah, all sorts of stuff. Oh, this is an important volume. Plutarch, Fall of the Roman Republic. What do we think about this? Uh, what I think about this is that... Uh, all right, so I got that book for a, um, a Roman history class I took in college, taught by a professor who accused me when I turned in my final paper. She of being too smart? <laughs> she, uh, she accused me of, of fucking... Um, uh, using, um, oh yeah, yeah, using a, an overly large uh, um, type uh, <laughs> uh, uh, font and uh, and playing Outrageous. with the margins, and it's like playing with the margins. First of all, I didn't do that because what are you an investment banker? Like? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I and also you know my my affliction is not is not not having enough words to say. It's that the words don't mean anything. So um, I was very offended by. Uh, um, professor so-and-so professor so-and-so we'll call her but yeah. i do remember your name <laughs> uh and i do remember that it was your only year at that college Ooh. um and uh <laughs> and i i am uh, oh yeah so anyway i don't remember anything about about that book Cause, yeah because it was at a time when i wasn't doing as much reading as i was assigned i'll i'll put it that way and i was basically only doing catch-up reading to be able to write um to write papers uh so i i got a lot to learn about the fall of the roman republic uh okay what about the history the brief history of the romans <laughs> i didn't read much out of that one either um <laughs> i got a bunch of elliot's the, books from this class the third the, one of the, the other textbooks we did use though was as the romans did or whatever which is yeah here we go as oh, the romans excellent. did as the romans did so the what the the best parts of of undergraduate history education i thought was always the primary um the primary source 
uh, books because you're actually hearing you're you're taken back to that time. So this person is complaining about how one person was complaining about how just loud it was in Rome. You know, we we think it's it's loud in in the city um, now. Just imagine if if. Um, <laughs> if everything was was no taller than three stories, and and it was even hotter inside than than we think it, it is in, in our current homes, and uh, and you know even though there weren't cars, just everyone was out on the street, and someone's you know some wealthy Roman is like you know thank goodness I have my country home <laughs> because it is too much for me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Turning to this random page, a most unscrupulous governor. In 76 BC, when Cicero was 30 years old, he was elected quaestor. During his year in office, he was sent to Sicily. He he impressed the Sicilians. Um, uh, Gaius Verus became governor of Sicily. He was thoroughly shameless and unscrupulous. (laughs) He enriched himself uh, while the... the, He left the inhabitants of Sicily destitute. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Oh, they brought him on trials of extortion. They asked Cicero to head the prosecution. Um, uh, okay, anyway. Um, if Cicero failed to have, uh, secure a conviction, he would destroy his political future. Um, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, and, and Cicero built himself. So this, this is what I wrote that, that paper of which I was accused of fudging with margins. <laughs> I wrote it on, like, it was called Cicero, A New Man in Ancient Rome. Oh. And it talked about how he he wasn't born to great wealth or power, but he he became a um, a lawyer in in Rome and and led a, a very consequential prosecution, and it put him on the map. He also ended up uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, I've also uh, watched the HBO series Rome, uh, and in the first <laughs> season, you might recall if you've seen it. Spoiler alert: Cicero, uh, um, because he's he he's essentially like cast out of the city. He, I, I forget what what Cicero ends up doing at the end of his life that gets him cast out um but he <laughs> he keeps on writing these letters that that um that are shitting on members of the of the, the public and uh and they get him and kill him and cut his hands off <laughs> 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 i don't know if this part for happened talking in, shit. for talking that shit so be careful what you write and who you write it about <laughs> you, you better mean it i guess um, i better mean what i said about tilsey gabbard yeah. i'll let you pay the price <laughs> uh and then lastly, just a Latin textbook. Yeah, and actually, this is I'm gonna I'm gonna take you through the. Uh, uh, I, have, I have two more textbooks out here. One one second. Um, yeah, Elliot has a lot of textbooks. He's got yeah. So uh, Elliot just moved in. Most of his books are in boxes. I had to kind of rifle through them, but he has built a desk that has a small uh, a, a space for maybe a dozen books. Uh, you know, maybe fifteen books. Uh, and so what is on his shelf uh, it speaks to the importance of the volume. Um, he's got Pete Carroll, Win Forever, uh, <laughs> The Witches of Eastwick. Because um, I needed some red. I, need, I just needed the color. That's all. <laughs> all, of, all of his Teddy Roosevelt books. But then, of course, he's got first and second year Latin. So what's going on? So uh, th- this, this first one, this was uh, my textbook in um, sixth grade. Uh, and and seventh grade when I had to re up. Oh, uh, and um, and uh, I, you can tell how much I paid attention in Latin class because at the top of a bunch of pages are just song lyrics. <laughs> what? Um, 
I can't read your handwriting. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, let's see. Let's I can't see. read my own handwriting, by the way. It's just disclaimer. Uh, last night we tried to touch, but we didn't get close. Last night we tried to talk. The words got caught in our throats. That's Tina Turner. <laughs> um, our love is like a ship on the ocean. We've been sailing with a cargo full of love and devotion. That's from uh, Hughes Corporation, Rock the Boat. <laughs> uh, talk to me like lovers do. Uh, here comes the rain again, falling on my head like a memory. So that's a that's a eurythmic song. Um, someday love will find you, break those chains that bind you. That's journey. So yeah, these are like the critical pages, you know, where you're supposed to, yeah, where I'm supposed to be focusing on interrogative pronouns and adjectives. Um, uh, I I have yeah, this is an Anita Baker uh, uh, lyric um, from No One in the World. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, oh. <laughs> okay, so also at this time, uh, the the TV infomercial selling music collections was all over the place, and so I just knew snippets of a bunch of songs yeah, yeah, yeah. that I you know to this day haven't haven't heard. So anyway, um, so I went from larger textbooks, uh, and the the joke we had was that the there's um, someone depicted on the inside of the first year one, and he looked ex- like precisely uncannily like my Latin teacher. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> and then this second year Latin one, and I don't know, they, they put some some movie scene on the cover of it. Uh, and then by high school, you don't get the fun textbooks anymore. It's just like little books that are just full of grammatical forms. There's no room to write song lyrics. There's no room to be distracted. Oh man! Um, so, but uh, but you, you reminded me when you were reading that passage of of the fact that Cicero was serving as quaestor. Uh, there was a, in, as a lot of societies have, um, there was a pretty rigid set of um, positions that you get to go through on your way on your way up to hopefully being consul someday. Uh, but yeah, quaestor and and aedile, and I don't even remember what they all are or what their roles were. But you know, the tax collector the guy who puts on the games and circuses, all this, all this stuff. So it's essentially, you know, city council member, mayor, <laughs> state senator. Gaming commissioner. Gaming commissioner. <laughs> all right. Well, that was an absolutely profitable <laughs> uh, line of inquiry with, some of the, with, the, with Rome. Um, okay. A Zin. The Zin. Yeah. Big, big Zen heads uh, on the mics right now. Uh, People's History of the United States. Uh, I'll quickly comment that I just love the uh, form of this book, which is just like, here's this chronological uh, examination of uh, the United States history, and um, every single point in history, people were getting together and organizing and mm-hmm. fighting back and securing rights. Absolutely. Uh, and it's just like, come on, Howard, isn't there some time in history where nobody did that? <laughs> And Howard is like, absolutely no. fucking not, you moron. No. Read this. And then he provides me with something. That, anyway. The, the helpful... Er, um, so, uh, it. I sometimes feel despair at where our society is right now. And this book is a helpful reminder of the fact that if you think things are bad now, imagine how bad they were before women's rights movements, the Chicano rights movements, uh, workers' rights movements, um, you know, people did stand up and make things make things different. And uh, I, you know, I'm generally too busy watching TV to do that. Uh, but 
but it it is possible to to change the impossible. Um, Marianne Williamson mentioned uh, us fighting against the abolitionists uh. by accident. She was by accident. She said her her exact words were, "We responded to abolitionism." <laughs> There's a lot of different ways to respond to yes. things. We, In, I, including adopting their their views and and making it the, <laughs> and, and and getting rid of slavery. So, um, but yeah, so the we 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 have found ways to do things that seemed pretty pretty damn impossible. Uh, and and Zinn does a very very good job of showing that. Um, and also, uh, I was joking with Alex earlier today that I uh, my current job has me um, in a position where. Generally, I work with unions, but because I work on the management side, I, I'm I'm a I'm a management functionary, and um, and so I, I anyway I spend a lot of time thinking about unions, um, and the fact that you know public employees get a lot more access to union representation than private employees, but uh, I think this book covers the Haymarket Square incident where yes. workers could only riot and detonate bombs to get anyone to listen to the fact that life was really terrible as a working person. All right, next we've got um, the oath, the Obama White House and the Supreme Court. Yes, yes. Uh, Jeffrey Tubin um, is a, uh, he reached national fame as a, an illegal analyst on CNN during O.J. Simpson's trial, um, and he's the one who wrote *The People versus O.J. Simpson*, which uh, which is, I guess, a, uh, an acclaimed book and uh, a an even more acclaimed, a super acclaimed <laughs> miniseries, <laughs> Emmy nominated uh, miniseries. I still haven't seen it. I got to see it. Are you serious? Yeah, it's incredible. Okay, it's incredible. Right. The, the I mean, Cuba Gooding Jr., John Travolta. Uh, it's an ensemble to to Courtney <laughs> uh, B. Vance to define a generation it's it's the trial of the century it's the miniseries of this of two centuries anyway well, you were I'm saying. a rube okay I got I'll, I'll I'll watch it um but uh uh but he's 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 educated as an attorney and he worked in um one of the I don't know if he was he he was a, a prosecutor in New York before uh getting out of that life and and becoming purely a writer um but he's he's often uh his inf- his information and and uh uh, and know-how is, is sought to analyze various um, legal questions that plague us today, but he does a lot of stuff on the Supreme Court. And this book, The Oath, so he had written, uh, is it called, the? I think it's called The Nine, and that came out sort of at the beginning of uh, Chief Justice Roberts's term. And uh, soon after, after the first couple of years of Obama's presidency, after Obama had appointed um, Sotomayor and Kagan, uh, he he wrote this book, and it so it, it it's a very helpful sort of biography and rundown of kind of all of the all the justices of the court over the last thirty years. Um, but uh, it's called the oath because, as you'll remember, Chief Justice Ro- and it goes into detail about how and why. But Chief Justice Roberts messed up when he was. Um, administering the oath uh, to President Obama during his first inauguration, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is a um, is a very bright man, and he knows it. And he um, insisted on memorizing it, and he ma- he managed to miss a part of the a part of the oath. And so o- Obama and his folks, understanding that any misstep that he ever took was always going to be used to. Um, to you know, as a loose thread to to tear apart the whole fabric of what he was trying to do, they were like, "Hey, man, you need to come back and administer this oath properly." Ooh. 
And so he he did, and I'm sure it was very embarrassing, but I think it's a good reminder that no matter how no, even if you're the Chief Justice of the United States, after having you know put together a really great career, you mean of the Supreme Court? Uh, my bad. <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, no, no, no. The the official name of, of that title that for an administrative that role is Chief Justice oh, of the United wow. States. Oh wow. Okay, He's, I'm, he, I'm he, fucked up. No, I, 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 I only know this because of that book. So so there are all those associate justices of the Supreme Court, but he is the Chief Justice of the United States. That is Damn. his title. <laughs> um, but even if you make it to that point, sometimes you might want to take notes with you. No kidding. All all right. Uh, <laughs> also, props to Jeffrey Tubin. He wrote a. I just quickly want to say he wrote a book about uh, about um, Patty Hearst and her, you know, work with the Symbionese Liberation Front. I, I've not I've not read it. I don't think I will. But he mentioned that in the late '60s and early '70s, there were something like 700 political bombings a year. Right. Right. Uh, we that like that is so far beyond my, our contemporary sense of. I mean, they were they were small. It would be like. Uh, uh, like a bomb would go off in a PO box in a li- in in a, uh, in a in a post office in the middle of nowhere, and, and no one would get hurt. No but, or they'd like blow up a bathroom or something. But yeah, I mean, uh, seven hundred is a fucking lot. It's a lot, and you 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 generally feel tense if you're in society. <laughs> at that time. The newspapers like today's bombings were. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. All right, uh, line of the Senate. Yeah, so Ted, Ted Kennedy. So this is a, um, a sort of a political memoir, and it um, covers the period of time. It, it's written by um, by two of uh, Ted Kennedy's main staffers. Um, one, I think, began it and um, fell into ill health, or maybe even died before being able to finish it. So the other staffer um, uh, picked up and carried the. Birth burden it's um I think it was yeah. senator, so david nixon was senator kennedy's senior health policy advisor and then he fell into ill health and died god damn uh <laughs> life is anyway uh <laughs> he um so it, it's um it's a pretty blow-by-blow uh, take on what happened after the um, so-called Republican Revolution in the 1994 midterm and congressional elections. So um, something I, I've i had a tough time wrapping my head around was um, I think once Democrats won the House of Representatives um, in the 1948 election, they they held the majority in the House of Representatives until 1994. And so after Democrats lost those houses, they didn't know, first of all, Republicans were excited to have their power, and they, of course, were going to use it and overuse it, and Newt Gingrich was all about that, but um, Democrats didn't quite know what to do either. Uh, and so Ted Kennedy, as, as this book argues, he decided to you know double down on the things that have become parts of, critical parts of the liberal um, uh, platform, but I, I think are actually just sort of generally right and fair for people. Act, um, uh, you know, proper protections for your um, for yourself as a worker, um, investment in in education, and uh, um, you know, proper regulation and uh, uh, things of the like. Um, and he, whereas some people were thinking it was time to really cater to uh, whatever Newt Gingrich had insisted the election meant, rather than cater to that, stake out exactly what it is that that makes Democrats differ from Republicans. And this is a time where 
uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, um, w- a lot of, uh, th- two programs come to mind. I, haven't, I don't think I've finished reading the book, but two things come to mind. This is the time in which we increased the federal minimum wage, um, and it, it hadn't been done in a little while up until, until that point, and of course, Republicans were not going along with it. Uh, and also, we got the children's health insurance program, um, and and these are not these are not perfect solutions for all the problems that that face Americans. But at a time when there was a conservative ascendancy, these pol- these policies came out of a Republican um, Congress. Of course, there was a Democrat at, uh, in the White House, uh, Bill Clinton. But uh, and uh, it, I and it's it's also it just it's it's if you dig a blow by blow sort of political thing, or if you were a child of the 90s and appreciate seeing <laughs> what it was like for Bob Dole to just have circles run around him, um, or or if you like ancient history and you and you get a kick out of seeing Arlen, or not Arlen Specter, but uh, Orrin Hatch, uh, former senator of Utah, being portrayed as someone who was competent. Uh, <laughs> history of the ancients. Yeah, history of the ancients. If you if you dig that, then Lion of the Senate is is an is an all right uh, volume. Uh, I should make a correction. Uh, David Nixon took over. Uh, he wasn't the one who died. It was Nick Littlefield, to the best of my ability to discern based on the uh, note from the author's introduction and epilogue. All right, War of eighteen nineteen. Uh, United States and Cuba in history. Yes, and yes. Historiography. War of eighteen ninety eight. This is. Uh, oh, excuse me. I'm. Dying 1898. This is an important volume, um, and uh, so this the the war that for so long we've thought of as the Spanish-American War. Um, the story behind that is it was really the Cuban people trying to get um, to end Spanish colonialism, and the United States just joined in uh, opportunistically. Um, so the the war it was it was like I think it's been called our splendid little war. It was essentially six weeks. Um, of, of U.S. involvement, but before that, Cubans had been had been fighting against uh, Spanish colonialism for at least fifteen years, um, and so the U.S. came in and made it a, a part of our thing, and um, it it makes. It's a, a, a very a, a good reminder of how, at that time, the United States was about to move on, move into a different level of... Um, we, we had changed from being a debtor nation to a creditor nation, um, where we, we were no longer borrowing. We were, we were a, a, a nation that provided credit to other countries, and um, we were busy building a, an insular empire around the Pacific so that we could take our navy and our export our goods so we had we were producing far more um, agricultural and manufactured goods than we could consume in the United States and so we wanted to expand into other markets hence the the reason why the United States and European powers were had been knocking on the door of China for so long but the United States wanted to set up an insular empire so by helping the Cubans defeat the Spaniards in 1898, we got um, uh, we got Cuba, we got Puerto Rico in in the Atlantic, um, but we <laughs> God, jeez, uh, but it, we, it, we received it. The the United for States Christmas. managed to take over the Philippines and Guam, and and it completed our way to be able to have all the coaling or sorry, all the naval ports and coaling stations between here and markets in China. Um, it's and it's also um, if I connect it with the uh, Teddy Roosevelt series. 
they mentioned how it was a military misadventure. The United States did not plan anything. We basically landed a bunch of dudes in the tropics with with no vaccinations, with no preparation for, for the terrain, with a bunch of horses and a bunch of cans of beans, and it was a shit show. And we learned our lesson and never did it again. Never did it again. <laughs> Jesus. Um, how was McKinley doing during this time period? Uh, he was he was doing his thing. I mean, uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he was elected in, in 1898. No, no, no. Yes, 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 yes. No, no, 1896. I'm sorry. Um, so he was he was in the middle of, of really helping advance American business interests and American colonial interests. So he was in his second term when he got shot? Yes, yes. Uh, I didn't realize that. Um, oh, here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Yo Mama's Dysfunctional, uh, Fighting the Culture Wars in Urban America by Robin D.G. Kelly, a book that has brought us closer together uh, in our, in our uh, senior year fall semester um, I don't know exactly what uh, um, it was called equity justice and race so yeah. it was a, a socioeconomic it, it was a history class a sociology class uh, but it focused on race and class um, and uh, and yeah this is quite uh, quite a book Tell also us a I haven't bit. I haven't read it in so long I'm I'm f- forgetting particular like um, passages but it was a really important book to read as as 18 year olds um, because it shed light on uh, on a lot of our uh, a lot of what is fueling racism in this uh, in this society, um, and I guess the title comes from what, what the culture of snapping. Yes, I believe so. Uh, his first chapter. Yet, once we look beyond the presumably male-occupied ghetto streets that dominated in the ethnographic imagination at the time, the story of the Afros, the hairstyle's origin and meaning, complicates the link to soul culture. Hmm. So, uh, pretty dense. Uh, pretty. D- I remember this book being really rewarding. I don't remember where my copy of it. Uh, and but by the way, that was the section you had circled. Uh, you've got prodigious annotations in here. You've come a long way since sixth grade Latin. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> By this point, um, many of the problems uh, minority workers and students face and many of the benefits white workers and students receive are not merely the product of thrift and hard work in a free market economy, but outcomes determined largely by government policy. And this oh, was something yeah. at the time that I actually did not understand very well. And uh, when I uh, went on to take urban studies and I came to understand the uh, effect of suburbanization, um, you know, shifting tax bases, uh, especially the construction of the highways um, and and uh, where and how and when those were um, constructed, obviously, uh, and, and the results Bulldozing, of... Bulldozing uh, minority communities bu- and creating a way that white people can leave. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, 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 so manufacturing and selling uh, untold numbers of cars and then uh, bulldozing minority communities, uh, shattering the communities, and yeah, like you just said, additionally, um, you know, selling the cars to the people that could afford them and giving a way for those people to um, concentrate themselves uh, to the detriment of everybody else. Uh, But, I don't know, uh, let's see here uh, in terms of this book. I mean, do you want to look through it or... uh, Yeah, let's at least read the the, uh, chapter headings. That that might give people... I mean, this is... It's interesting that this book is like so important to us and we were introduced to it so long ago i 10 or 15 years ago yeah yeah close to that at least years ago 
Uh, well, I'm not going to read the f- title of the first chapter, uh, but the subtitle is Social Scientists Construct the Ghetto. Chapter two, looking to get paid, how some black youth put culture to work. Chapter three, looking backward, the limits of self-help ideology. Uh, chapter four, looking looking extremely backward, why the enlightenment will only lead us into the dark. I can't imagine what that chapter was about. Uh, chapter five, looking forward, how the new working class can transform urban America. And then an epilogue, Looking Blackward, uh, 2097, 1997. I am, I am sure that, uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Kelly has, has more to say about, <laughs> about what uh, that period uh, carries with it. Uh, I have yet to read any of his other books. I do remember in that class we read Black Wealth, White Wealth, which is just mm-hmm. a, um, I guess you could call it a, a classic in sociology, and just a quantitative examination of the impact of um, a number of things, but I mean the, the, the obvious looming specter in all of America, probably the defining element of American history, which is slavery, and like the the element, the, the degree to which like you can um, quantitatively trace uh, inequalities in socioeconomy, um, the various microeconomies and the broader macro picture of the United States back to uh, that you know um, economic system seems pretty pretty a uh, light way of putting it. But basically, um, the book Black Wealth White Wealth is worth your time if you want to look it up. And then this this one was obviously more focused on the intersection of culture and race than it was on yeah. economics, although economics plays some part. Yeah, uh, I, I'm I think I'm gonna have to gonna have to read excerpts of this one of these days. All right, Henry L. Stimson, the first wise man. <laughs> yes. Okay. So this this also uh, ties into Teddy Roosevelt because Henry L. Stimson was a confidant of uh, of Teddy Roosevelt, and the book opens. And wise man is is just the term for those those guys, and to some extent now those women who are just always in government, the kind of people who are going back and forth from from being CEOs to having high levels uh, in in government, who are just sort of trusted. They're the kind of people who lead the delegations to free uh, <laughs> free um, hostages. It's just like who who the hell are who's you? Who? They're just people who are relied upon by this this ruling class of uh, of Americans. So um, Henry L. Stimson, the, my professor wrote that book, and he learned who Henry L. Stimson was because he was he was from Long Island, and I guess he played at a a baseball field called Henry Stimson Field. And I was like, who who is this guy? So Henry Stimson um, was was a a New Yorker. He um, you know he was well well born and uh, became a you know New York lawyer. But he was going back and forth between um, making money in p- private practice, certainly representing corporate interests, and then going and being in um, sort of foreign policy areas of the U.S. government. So this guy's whole life, his whole working career, spanned essentially um, the the whole rise of of American empire throughout the first part of the. 20th, the first half of the 20th century, because he was, not only did he serve as um, the uh, colonial governor in the Philippines after we had, after the United States had taken over the Philippines as part of the spoils of the uh, war against Spain, uh, b- uh, but then he would oh, uh, go on to serve as um, Secretary of War for Taft or something, and then he served as Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of War during World War II. It is Henry Stimson that was in charge of the list of cities that we might target with, uh, that the United States might target with nuclear weapons in Japan. 
it is he who consistently remu- removed, um, I think it's Kyoto, but uh, a city with, you know, um, Buddhist religious significance. He was, he um, insisted that, that would not be on the list because, you know, say what you will about the brutality of war, guys who existed back then thought of themselves as gentlemen. <laughs> Gentle men. Yes. On the one hand, they can they can create and deploy the nuclear bomb, but uh, but only as gentlemen, of course. We're, we're going to leave some temples. <laughs> um, oh, and the other uh, thing I'll say about that as we conclude the talk on the first wise man, it was a volume written by by this history professor because there were no other um, texts that could um, help him teach the lessons he wanted to teach us from from that period. And so uh, we all had to buy this book that he had written. And to show us that he wasn't making us buy the book just to pad his wallet, he uh, he uh, put out for a pizza party at the end of the semester. Oh, <laughs> proof proof positive. I um, but you respected him. You had yeah yeah. He's he was a, a tremendous mentor, and uh, um, yeah, he was my favorite professor by far. So I only ended up taking that class of his. I went to college to be a politics major, political science, but but Whitman called it politics. Uh, I think that's inspired by Princeton. Um, and, uh, like, a, a, a freshman couldn't get into any of the good classes. Uh, and so I, I took The Emergence of Modern America, which takes us from um, uh, the, you know, end of Reconstruction, from the deliberate choice to end Reconstruction after the Civil War, up through um, up through the end of World War uh, II. So it, it was, it was a, a very important class to me. Um, I... Uh, d- d- took this political science class my senior year. I took one, one exactly one class of it before dropping it. It was called <laughs> Understanding Congress. Oh. Uh, it was a gr- the, the, the book was terrible and the professor had uh, a, a, a pair of pants with very loose, not, not well-fitting pants with <laughs> a lot of g- generous pockets and he filled his right pocket with keys and change and shook his hand which was deeply sake. ensconced in the pocket uh, to accentuate uh, at least once every two sentences something that he was saying. So it was a jangling nightmare the entire class and I <laughs> dropped it. It would have been the only political science class I would have taken and it I was led to believe based on my impressions that it would not help me understand Congress. <laughs> that it would absolutely absolutely ruin my ruin my semester. Uh, a and jangling then nightmare. One other thing I'll say is uh, my... Um, Africana Studies uh, professor who I ended up doing a research practicum with, his big thing was the African diaspora. Uh, and he wrote a bunch of books, and he's a genius. He wrote one of my um, graduate's uh, school recommendations, and he, he goes from one academic strength to another. He was the dean of uh, George Washington's undergraduate mm-hmm. um, school, and then now he's like some big shot at Case Western. But um, I read a book of his um, uh, called Before Mestizaje, which is just like... Um, a look at like uh, all the uh, different categories of mixed race peoples in uh, I think turn of the century Mexico um, and the degree to which like um, how much you you would receive one of a dozen classifications based on how much um, Spanish and indigenous blood you had and and the ways in which you came to have it um, and he there's a section of this book that's just dedicated to court cases where um, they needed to establish 
establish what the person was, but they didn't have enough information, and they w- the 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 judge would assign you like uh, you were a lobo, which is one of the terms, or you were this or that. Um, uh, at the t- at, based on available information, and you would actually change over the course of the trial. <laughs> 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 so, like, based on new evidence uh, presented, because oh, no. uh, people would be like, we don't know where this guy came from. He just committed this crime, uh, but we got to figure out. Like, anyway, um, uh, that that suggests that. that Basing your justice system off of how much of a of a uh, you know racial makeup someone has is is probably not the correct way to go about things. And yet, so many people do it. Oh yeah. Uh, in the midst of perpetual fets or feats, F E T parties, making of American nationalism seventy six to twenty. Yes. Uh, so the um, history major required that everyone take. Um, Oh yeah, this yeah. So you, there were like a few big milestones in in it. One was your history two hundred one class, which was basically teaching you how to uh, research and and do um, you know historiography, sort of secondary uh, or sorry, studying your sources and using that to get you started on on um, answering your own research question. And uh, the class I took, the semester was divided in half between nationalism and, and economics. Um, the nationalism portion um, is where this book comes from. So this book is studying how um, after the original, the, the initial revolutionary era where um, people like uh, uh, Hamilton and Jefferson and Adams are actually, you know, walking the streets and actually carrying out what their whatever their intentions were for um, uh, f- for having thrown off the shackles of of paying taxes on tea uh, to um, to where there's this next generation of people and everyone has to decide what it means to be an American. So there are um, uh, it talks about how practices of um, uh, developed around celebrating the Fourth uh, uh, of July came about, or having you know parades of American butchers, you know, with their with their blood stained aprons uh, to celebrate. And but what I've most recently pulled that off the shelf to to look at, there was a portion that talked about tarring and feathering. Oh God! Um, so <laughs> I've always been curious about the, the the the. I mean, that's a horrific thing to do, is it not? It's like- horrific, but I believe that um, it's not actually what we think of as tar. It's heated. Um, tree sap uh so you know it could be scalding but it wasn't it didn't have to be (laughs) um and uh and if you had so tarring and feathering came about during the revolutionary era for people who um who were not properly uh invested in in the american revolution but also it it survived into the early American period where if you if you didn't celebrate Americanness the way other people thought you should you'd you'd get a you'd get a heaping of some tarring and feathering a practice which I think we should consider um, how to deploy in modern times <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, the, the politicians are racking their brains. I mean, depending on who they are, some don't care at all about uh, the uh, ratio of voters to non-voters and how to increase and uh, and drive political engagement. And Darn I think, they ask. I think, like, I think intense pain is going yeah. to be the way that this. this and, and remember, is tarring and feathering includes parading someone throughout the town square and heaping them with uh, with scorn and opprobrium. Probrium, uh, and making sure everyone knows that they've been embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, oh my God! Here we are. The path to power. The years of Lyndon Johnson. This is, is this the second one. I think it's the second one. Yeah. So uh, right now the volu- the the series is is through four, and uh, um, uh, I m- much like the Teddy Roosevelt series, I'm I'm reading them absolutely out of order. Um, I started with the third book, Master of the Senate. I read the book then that covers the um, period between uh, Johnson's vice presidency and and the first few months of, of him taking the office of the president after Kennedy's assassination. Um, but this volume talks about his uh, first sort of uh, how he... Okay, so um, I think Robert Caro talks about a lot of the same events in Johnson's life throughout these books. So without having read the whole series, I don't know... I can't say all that is new in this one, but um, it it focuses a lot on his um, his high school, or his his adolescence, his high school life. He was a, a gawky, tall uh, kid. He may have been an only child, or somehow was uniquely sort of loved and doted on. Um, but the thing about the Johnsons and the Johnson men for generations, they had occupied the. Um, Petternales Valley in the hill country of Texas. When they got there in the eighteen hundred, in the late eighteen hundreds, there was lush grass as far as the eye could see, but the the earth there was so rocky that um, you you could barely till the soil more than a season or two uh, before it all ended up washing away. Uh, and so they they be, they had all this land, but they were. Um, poor in some ways. His father had served in the Texas legislature, but the Texas legislature for a very long time has not been a it's a part-time legislature and you spend most of your time selling influence that you can make after you leave it. My, my, things haven't changed (laughs) anywhere in this country. Um, But so his father was well respected and did a lot for working people, but, um, but didn't have, you know, didn't have a any real wealth uh, and Johnson was also pretty embarrassed by his father because I think his dad ended up losing more money and losing elections but uh, this book talks about how much that memory burdened President Johnson and inspired him and made him a very just like a weird insecure but bullying person through his time at um, oh and always a flatterer of um, of like the most influential you know father like male in any environment, yeah. These these neighbors, they're they're the kinds who will drag out a table and play beer pong. Uh, so there's yeah. there's a there's a ruckus and a rumpus taking place somewhere uh, out outside here, and uh, apparently it's it's uh, Elliot's it's not unusual. Uh, irresponsible. A couple neighbors. of weeks ago, every goddamn night, just house music starting at midnight. Just <laughs> 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 right out my, my window, basically my bedroom window leans out onto their porch, basically. So anyway, well, I, so, I, I soon the rains it. will wash this riffraff away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. May, may it be a biblical deluge. Uh, and uh, so the book covers his time at San Marcos Teachers College and his time um, exploring whether he would, uh, he he was trying to be a lawyer. He had been a really good debate coach. He like, in one year, he he turned a, just a nothing high school debate program into the, the state champions, and then he left because he's a highly ambitious person. He went and became a staffer for a congressperson, and then uh, he was basically flattering and selling influence in that congressperson's office, and then um, there... What an asset. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the kind of person that'll go far in this organization. 
And he does. He eventually wins his own seat uh, at the age of like 27 or 28 or something. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and he was, he's just gawky and he's all nose and ears and, and slick back black hair. And, um, and he's, he was a very warm and lovable campaigner, but he campaigned himself to exhaustion and the odds were against him. He had to, uh, in the Democratic primary, he faced much more established um, uh, opponents and by sheer uh, will and, you know, using his father's good reputation, he became a congressman. And the portion I've just finished talks about how Say what you will about the rest of his career, one of the themes were that he was always helping regular, normal people, down and out poor people who have been left out of the bounty of... Um, of American, or sorry, who've been left out of their share of the American bounty. So in the Texas Hill Country, Robert Caro took great pains to explain how rough life was for people every day. You had to wake up every morning, go down and haul water, and then you had to boil all that water. You had to use some of it by scrubbing, you know, scrubbing clothes that would never get clean. You always had to tend the fire. You always had to do ironing, which meant having two hot irons alternating, and they were always in, uh, in the uh, fire or they were on the clothes. Um, men were all, or yeah, women were hunched over um, into a, you know, a question mark by the time they were in their 40s because of how much work they had to do every single day from washing, cooking, cleaning, all while the men were out all day doing, doing the other parts of, of agricultural um, rural existence. And uh, electricity is what changed this. The electricity um, uh, utilities at the time were uh, insistent that they could never make a profit over laying all that wire, but because of strings that Congressman Johnson was able to pull, they basically forced them to, to wire um, electricity in, in parts of the country, in parts of Texas that never ever dreamed of it, and, uh, and it changed everyone's lives. Well, goddamn! Can you and can you before we move on? Uh, we only have a couple left, but um, can you just give some context for Robert Caro and and the immensity of this particular uh, series of books? Yeah. So um, since I think the first volume, Means of Ascent, was released in uh, early '80s, maybe '82 or something, uh, and Robert Caro and his wife—I'm forgetting her name. Uh, they researched this stuff heavily, um, and he had written uh, a book called The Power Broker, and it's something, the page count is something wild, like approaching a thousand pages about, um, and Robert Caro says he's, he's fascinated and interested in power, those who have it and how they use it. And so this unelected man in, in New York, Robert Moses, basically ruled and made decisions on what was built and what was developed, where and when, for about 50 years. New York today, and I think many of its uh, infrastructural uh, flaws or idiosyncrasies <laughs> are based on what this one guy wanted to make happen. He is partially responsible for insisting that if a new baseball stadium were to be built in the New York area, it would be built in uh, Flushing rather than a new stadium in Brooklyn. Dodgers leave Brooklyn, come to LA. The Mets end up playing in in uh, in what would be known as Shea Stadium. So it's yeah. So anyway, he wrote that, uh, and then and that basically took him from being a like a, a 
a broke journalist to having you know to having an editor who would would really take care of him and give him the time and space to research. He and his wife spent I think either one year or two years in Texas Hill Country, seeing what it was like, what it looked like, who lived there, how they lived, what they had to say about President Johnson and everyone who was around there. And what they found was that the more you go and talk to people, the more information you get. And so the the books are really really lush and dense. The series is called The Life and Sorry, the, the, the years, years of Lyndon of... Johnson. So it's not just about President Johnson. It's about um, the the trends and events and people who who uh, who figured figured in the time. I didn't know shit about Rob, um, about uh, Emmett Till until the fifty pages that Robert Caro spent uh, uh, expended in in Master of the Senate uh, describing that. Um, or an example that all that stuff I told you about the grind of life in the Hill Country. That that is the kind of the kind of um, foundation that that Carol lays. Uh, he's in his 80s. Uh, they're working on the next volume. It'll come out when it comes out. Um, I saw on Book TV recently. Conan O'Brien interviewed him, and it was it was really it was very interesting. Book TV people, C-SPAN too. <laughs> Look out! Um, but he but he used a a phrase that was like it would have been enough. If 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 Robert Caro doesn't write one more word, he has already contributed so much more to human understanding and and what we know about the 20th century and, and how that impacts our, our times today. Yeah, so you can tell from the way Elliot's discussing this book that generally speaking, if you are into political science, and especially from an academic angle, one of the things you must read in terms of like a big bucket list uh, series of books is these is these books, the series on Lyndon Johnson. Um, and uh, I don't know that I'll ever do it. <laughs> I mean, I should, I suppose. I just like I spend too much time with novels and like computer shit. Well, the other good thing is that Robert Caro has made a bunch of appearances where he talks about about this stuff. So just just let let him let it in one way or another. Just <laughs> absorb it some somehow. I it's, promise it's I will. I promise I will. I last night I was reading from this big. Uh, I think it's like a Princeton University Press book that's just like a series of chapters um they're mostly historical science about astronomy um so there are discussions of particular topics uh, about the you know really extreme elements of the universe and i was reading the the black hole chapter that includes a sentence that was like it's describing this hypothetical situation where this professor has sent this grad student into the center of a black hole oh. <laughs> to see what it's like. Uh, and it's uh, the, as the grad student crosses the event horizon, they have no idea that it's happened, right? And the um, the, the author includes this sentence. In fact, uh, roughly speaking, uh, in fact, uh, you could be passing across the event horizon of a black hole right now in your room and you wouldn't even know it. Oh, boy. Um, but he was like, also, uh, don't worry if the sun imploded and became a black hole it would the earth would continue to uh orbit it uh normally it would just look like a big black hole in the sky uh and i was like (laughs) which i guess you would have to discern uh through the pattern of the stars i guess because obviously there wouldn't be a sun but um all right almost there uh the american people in the great depression yeah, so this this was a uh, an, another one from from that uh, emergence of a modern modern America class. Uh, I don't think we can begin to imagine how horrible the fucking Great Depression was. Um, but uh, 
I I am I am challenged to go into detail about what I read from this book. <laughs> this is another one of those books that I I read real fast to get what I needed to write a paper. Uh, but um, I do remember that it talks about the Wagner Act of 1937, uh, which uh, gives us the uh, the National Labor Relations, which is the National Labor Relations Act, which gave us the structure for for um, for uh, unions. But I yeah I, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I'm forgetting the. I got, I've chosen to keep it all these years, so I must have liked it, but I'm forgetting what's in it. With an even hand, Kennedy details the New Deal's problems and defeats as well as its, its achievements. He also sheds fresh light on its incandescent mm. but enigmatic author, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Mm. Is that how you think of FDR, incandescent but enigmatic? <laughs> if that is how we describe that one scene from Hyde Park at Hudson, oh, I, would, God. I would concur. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what, what do we? What, uh, uh, among the consequences that flowed from that parochial belief, uh, God damn it! Uh, this, uh, which I believe is referring to this sentence: the sound internal economic system of a nation is a greater factor in its well-being than the price of its currency in changing terms of the currencies of other nations. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying about going from a debtor to a creditor nation? Uh, among the consequences that flowed from that parochial, it is yeah, that's a good word for it. Belief was America's refusal to play a part in stemming the tide of economic nationalism and vicious militarism of Nazism and fascism and Japanese aggression <laughs> um, that were as much the products of the global depression as Chicago breadlines and Kansas City Hoovervilles. Oh, intriguing. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's that one. Lastly, this book, which I really enjoyed, that you lent to me, that's, that's full of just... <laughs> Pop and sass <laughs> and just tea spilling everywhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, this book is called This Town, Two Parties and a Funeral, Plus Plenty of Valet Parking in America's Gilded Capital. Yes. Um, the, the, this Town, the best news in Washington, D.C. since the $100 haircut. So you, you get the idea about how blown out this book is. But, yeah. It, 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 is, it is about uh, essentially, you know, green room culture. It, uh, it starts, I, th I think it starts at Tim Russert's funeral uh yes as a way of showing the all the people that were there yeah all the people that were there and the fact that they were all whoever they were talking to they're always looking over their shoulder to see who else they could talk to and the first sentence of the book is tim russard is dead but the room was alive oh god <laughs> hell yeah so yeah, great, great book, and and of course when when I think of Tim Russert, I th I think of the fact that I was washing either a Nissan or a Volkswagen at my summer uh, job during college, and Alex texted me and was like, "Hey, what? Tim Russert is dead." <laughs> we all remember where we were when the the day the music died. Oh goodness, yes, yes. Well, that's a that's a pleasure. I hope I hope um I hope you're. The audience isn't bored. Uh, well, what I'll say is that uh, this was a glorious way to capture and uh, for posterity one of my favorite things about you, uh, which is your endless ability to um, extemporize on these types of topics in a way that's extremely relatable and grounded uh, and also hilarious and, and has a sense of, uh, uh, of ironic perspective in addition to like the very, very earnest, uh, careful and conscientious ways of thinking. So, um, hey man. So yeah, this is something I for sure wanted to do. Um, yeah, this is this is a pleasure. Thank you. This is a, a fun, <laughs> a fun. Uh, not going to quite judge how long that was, but it was. <laughs> it's, it's lengthy. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. I mean, you know, I think there will be an opportunity at some point to do this again. But this is something I've heard Elliot do. These. This is uh, a kind of conversation I've had with Elliot for many, 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 many years, and it's always been a tremendous. Uh, 
tremendous uh, boon uh, and an honor. So. It's always fun to share this sort of experience with you. Thank you. Thank you.